As Christians who live in a materialistic culture, it's really easy to get focused on acquiring more and more stuff while neglecting the needs of others. Even if our desire is not to pursue wealth, it's easy for the needs of the poor to be ignored. Gratefully, the God we serve cares for the poor and vulnerable, and He demonstrated this by including provisions for them in the law. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of more gospel-centered, nations-minded resources at Radical.net. And stick around at the end of this episode to hear about a groundbreaking tool from Radical for fulfilling the Great Commission. In today's message from Leviticus chapter 25, Pastor David points us to God's provision for the poor in Israel through the year of Jubilee. We're reminded of God's character and His generosity, and ultimately the hope that we have in Christ. Those who have received God's grace and salvation should be compelled to address the spiritual and physical needs of others. If you have uh, Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open it with me to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus. So I was talking with a church member this week, and she told me, I've got to be honest with you, David, I did a happy dance when we finally finished reading Leviticus, and she was smiling so big. I almost didn't want to tell her, but I looked at her and I said, you'll, you'll never guess what book I'm going to preach from uh, one more time. And immediately, my wife's smile dropped. <laughs> and she said, are you serious? I said, yes. This text, I'm really excited about this text. Leviticus 25, I'm convinced, may be one of the most radical text in all the Bible. And if we're not careful, we'll just read over it and, and miss it, and miss its mammoth implications for our lives. So if, you are, if you're visiting uh, Brook Hills uh, for the first time tonight, or maybe, maybe you came for the first time last week, maybe even put your faith in Christ for the first time last week, um, we want to welcome you, obviously, but we, we are on a, a journey as a faith family where we are reading through the Bible over the course of uh, two years. So we started in January, and our, our goal, our hope, Lord willing, is that two years from now, we'll have read actually through the Old Testament once, uh, which is the first almost two-thirds of the Bible, and the New Testament and Psalms twice. And so what that involves is reading uh, a couple of chapters each day, usually one chapter from the Old Testament, uh, which is where we've been in Leviticus, and uh, we're now into Numbers, and then the other chapter is either from the New Testament or Psalms, which is a part of the Old Testament. And so right now we're in Numbers and Psalms. In Brook Hills, I promise we're going to get to some of these psalms. These psalms are good. But every week uh, we're we are spending time in one of these texts that we've been reading the last week when we come together. And as I prayed this week about where, where to land tonight, uh, this text just rose to the top for reasons that I think will be evident, uh, particularly by the end of our time together in the Word. So what I want to do is I want us to read Leviticus 25. We're going to start just by reading verses 8 through 12 that will kind of lay the foundation. Then we'll, we'll read through some other parts of this text over the next few moments. And, and, and really just a simple picture, but like I said, significant 
implications for, for our lives in this room. So follow along with me. This is the word of God, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years. So that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. Okay, let's pray. God, we, we bow our heads before you right now with our Bibles open in front of us. And we pray that in the next few moments, you would speak to us. God, we, we do not enter into this time lightly, casually. This is not just routine. God, help us even now as we're praying to, to focus, like, to realize what we're doing and to anticipate what you're about to do. Lord, we want to hear from you. God, I pray for grace for me to speak your word clearly and accurately. I don't want to speak my thoughts, my ideas, my opinions. We pray that your word would be clear. And we pray that you would help us to hear your word clearly and accurately, humbly. Lord, help us to submit to it. Help us to obey whatever you tell us to do in and through it. Lord, we pray that your spirit would take your word and just apply it in myriad of ways all around this room over the next few moments in ways that, that affect our lives and, and God in ways that affect many others' lives who are not even here right now, but whose lives will be affected because of your work and your word in us in this room. So, so we pray this in dependence on your spirit, asking you to lead and guide our time together over the next few moments. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Okay, so this text describes what is known in the Old Testament as the year of Jubilee. So you may be familiar with that term. You may be totally unfamiliar with that term. What I want to do is I want to ask three questions. One, what is the year of Jubilee? Second, what was its purpose? And third, what in the world does any of this have to do with our lives in this room, with your life right where you are sitting? So... Very simply, first, what is the year of Jubilee? And there's a summary of this at the top of your notes just to make sure we're all understanding what's going on here. It happened every 50th year. So seven weeks of seven years, 49 years would go by. Now, just out of curiosity, how many of you in this room, how many of us in this room are under 50 years old? Just raise your hand really high. Okay, keep them raised for a second. Just kind of look around, all right? Under 50 years old. And that's a lot of people in this room. And you can put them down. But I asked that question just to emphasize that this is, 
What we're reading about here is really a once-in-a-lifetime kind of deal for most everybody. You may have been a part of the people of God for 40-plus years, and you still would not have experienced this. This is only something you've heard about. It seems distant to you. Maybe even if, if, you, were, if you were alive when, the, when it came around, it was, you were young and you, you can hardly remember it. And so you're looking forward to it. This happens just once in a lifetime, every 50th year. And it involved two main things. So first, in that 50th year, everyone's land was returned. Everyone's land was returned. So when the people of God would come into the promised land after, after when, and we'll read about this as we get into Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. Um, God, once they got in the promised land, would apportion that land to different tribes and different families. Every tribe and every family would have an allotment, an inheritance of land. But, so you'd have land that would belong to your family as a part of your tribe. But over 50 years, things would happen in your lives and things would happen in your land that would affect your financial standing and your status in that land. So you might have a, a family member get sick or even die. And as a result, you're, you're not able to work the land like you once were able to. Maybe drought comes on the land. Or maybe you actually mismanage the allotment of land you've been given. All sorts of things would happen. And many times people would be forced to sell their land in order to provide for themselves. And when this happened, God set up a way for his people to be able to get back their allotment of land. Look down at verse 25. Verse, chapter 25, verse 25, talks about paying a redemption price, a price to redeem the land, to buy it back. Listen to verse 25. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. But if it does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee, it shall be released and he shall return to his property. So before Jubilee, you could get back your land by paying a redemption price. And that redemption price was calculated in part based on how many years were left until the next Jubilee. The point was that the original owner of the land could buy back that land at any time if he was able to pay the redemption price. And then, even if he wasn't able to pay the redemption price, when the year of Jubilee came along, every 50th year, automatically you would get your allotment of land back. So everyone's land was re returned to its original owner every 50 years in the year of Jubilee. Second thing that happened was everyone's freedom was restored. Everyone's freedom was restored. So if you faced financial trouble, one option was to sell your land to a, a relative or a near relative or things got really bad, maybe to a stranger or maybe to get a loan on the land. But even if you were still in financial trouble after that, you could get to a point where you would sell yourself to another Israelite, for, or even a non-Israelite if things were really bad. Look down at verse 39 where God talks about this. God set up a system of servanthood whereby an impoverished brother could sell himself into slavery in order to escape poverty. Look at verse 39. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. 
For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. So, notice, when, when, when you hear slavery here, don't think uh, pre-Civil War slavery in the United States. It's a very different picture. In, in fact, that's why God said, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker. So picture a, a, basically a contractual agreement here with an employee to work in a household until you can establish yourself again as a free and full citizen among the people of God, which a person would have an opportunity to do every seven years on their own, or another family member could redeem, could buy you out of that picture. You could earn that on your own, or if nothing else, every 50th year when the year of Jubilee came along, every Israelite's freedom at that moment would be totally restored. So, Imagine the effects of all of this in the people of Israel. It was good news for the poor. The year of Jubilee was great news for the poor. And put, put yourself in this picture. For over 40 years, your family, for a variety of reasons, may have spiraled downward into poverty. First you lost your land, then you lost your freedom, and you found yourself serving in another person's house with no land to call your home. Until one day, these trumpets just start blasting all throughout that land. And at that moment, just like that, all your debts are canceled. Your freedom is just like that given back to you. And the land that belongs to your family becomes yours again and you are free to enjoy it. That's good news for the poor. You spiraled into poverty and just like that, you have a total do-over. Start fresh. This was also sobering news for the wealthy. So think about the other side of this. You may have had a very prosperous 40 plus years or 30 plus years, 20 plus years, whatever. But you would have had less motivation, wouldn't you, to acquire more and more and more land and wealth when you knew when it came to the 50th year, everything was going to be returned to its original family anyway. And in this way, you couldn't keep acquiring more and more and more and more because every 50 years, in a matter of one year, you and everybody else would find yourselves in the exact same financial situation. So you may have made it big, acquired all this land, and then in an instant, just like that, you have the exact same amount that someone who had nothing the day before had. You're all on the same plane after it. So this is good news for the poor, sobering news for the wealthy. So what was the purpose of all this? Why did God set this up among his people every 50 years? Well, fivefold. On one hand, the purpose of the year of Jubilee was designed to acknowledge the holiness of God. You look back up in verse 23, the holiness of God. You, you see the Basically, the theological foundation for why God set this up. He said in verse 23, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. The land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. In all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. Notice midway through verse 23 there, that phrase, the land is mine. This whole picture was an acknowledgement that God alone it's holy. God alone owns all things. That the land ultimately belongs to God. That he is separate from us. Holy above us. And anything we have ultimately comes from, from him. That this land that he's given us is the land that he has given us. 
It doesn't, even when it says the land you possess, we possess it to a certain extent, but ultimately he possesses it. So it's designed to acknowledge the holiness of God, that all things, including all land and all possessions, belong to God. Second, Jubilee was designed to support healthy families. So the year of Jubilee was designed to strengthen the family unit, to enable families to come back together on their land with their freedom. You said, you, you, you heard in, in verses 39 through 43 about how someone who's been a servant in your household is able to go free along with his children. They're able to start all together as a family, start over again, designed to support healthy families. Along those lines, it was designed to prevent hopeless poverty. Just, just think about it. On, on average, every person, every family had at least a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to start fresh. No matter how irresponsibly they may have handled their finances or how far into debt they may have fallen, how difficult the circumstances they may have faced, may have faced in their life, by the end, they would have a chance. Somewhere in their life, they would have a chance to start over. Look down in verse 47. Just see how this chapter closes out. And hear God's provision for the poor. He says, if a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he goes rich, he may redeem himself. In other words, he can come out of this slavery. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sales shall vary with the number of years. The time he was with his owner shall be rated as the time of a hired, hired worker. If there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionately for his redemption some of his sale price. If there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to his years of service. He shall treat him as a worker hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by any of these means, so here's all these potential provisions, but if none of that, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. For it's to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So God designed this whole picture that we read about in Leviticus 25 to prevent hopeless poverty among his people. And for that matter, like we talked about just a second ago, to prevent excessive wealth among his people. The year of Jubilee was a fresh start for both the poor and for the rich. And neither of them were going to spend an entire lifetime either in excessive poverty or excessive wealth. Fourth, the year of Jubilee, Jubilee was designed to promote holistic worship. You look back at verse 55, which we read just a second ago, talking about how God brought his people out of Egypt. We've studied before in the past uh, in Exodus, how God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, even that was sung just a minute ago by these uh, incredible kids uh, that were standing behind me. This picture of bringing them out of Egypt for the glory of his name, for the sake of his name, for the worship of his name. And this is, this is how God was glorifying himself through providing for his people in a holistic way. Finally, now this, this part of the year of Jubilee was really the ultimate part, but it was unrealized among most Jews in the Old Testament because the year, of, the year of Jubilee was designed ultimately to foreshadow hope in Christ. The whole point of Jubilee was to point to Jesus. Did you, did you notice back in Leviticus chapter 25 verse 9 when I read that first passage, did you notice on what day the trumpet blast was sounded in the year of Jubilee? 
In verse 9, it says, You shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. Here it is. On the day of what? Of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. Atonement. That's the day that we talked about uh, some of the two weeks before Easter. If you missed those weeks, this was the day when the people of God would gather together in the Old Testament around the tabernacle or eventually the temple. And the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people's sin. Picture of atonement, being at one with God, being reconciled to God. And this sacrifice would provide a covering for their sin against God. This was the one day that was set aside to celebrate reconciliation with God through sacrifice. And it's this day in the Jubilee year when the trumpets would blast and it would be sounded not just reconciliation with God, but reconciliation with each other, restoration of land and freedom. Now with that picture in the Old Testament, turn with me over to Luke chapter 4 in the New Testament. You've got to see this. Luke chapter 4. So Luke is beginning his story of Jesus' ministry, and this is where he chooses to begin the story of Jesus' life on earth and his, his ministry on earth. We've got his birth before this in Luke chapter 2. And we've got temptation of Jesus at the beginning of Luke chapter 4. But when it comes to him beginning ministry, this is how Luke announces Jesus' ministry. Look at Luke chapter 4 verse 16. The Bible says, Jesus came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, if we were sitting in this Jewish synagogue in the first century, we would recognize this quotation from Isaiah as a direct allusion to the year of Jubilee that we just read about in Leviticus chapter 25. When you hear this proclamation of the year of the Lord's favor, that's a reference to Jubilee. So Jesus reads this, this announcement, the year of the Lord's favor, restoration, redemption has come. Then he sits down and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, this is Jesus saying, I am Jubilee. I have come to provide atonement, to cancel debts, to free slaves. I have come to restore men to God and to one another. I am good news for the poor. I am good news for the blind. I'm good news for the captives. I'm good news for the oppressed. I have come to restore and redeem you. Oh, non-Christian friends who are here tonight, we are so thankful that you are here. And more than anything, in what we sing tonight, in how we pray, and even in what we're talking about here, 
maybe wondering, well, why am I sitting here listening to talk about Leviticus year of Jubilee and economic redistribution, this, that. We'll get to that in a second. But more than anything, we want you to hear that though you and I and all of us in this room have sinned against God and are separated from God as a result of our sin, of our turning away from God to our, ourselves, God in his love has sent his son to free you and me, us, from sin. To free us from sin's penalty and sin's power. To free us from the payment of sin, which is death. Jesus has come. He would die on a cross for sin. He would rise from the grave in victory over sin. This is why he came. This is why this is good news. Because anyone in this room who turns from their sin and puts their faith in Jesus can be reconciled to God. That's jubilee. That's celebration. You right where you are sitting tonight, not based on anything you have done or ever can do in the future, based on anything you can do right now, but simply based on trust in what he has done in his coming, you right where you're sitting can be reconciled to God forever. So we invite you, we implore you tonight to put your trust in, in Jesus, to Turn from your sin and trust in him. When it comes to how does this apply to our lives, first and foremost, this text beckons every single one of us in this room to put your faith in Christ, to be reconciled to God, to celebrate what he has come to do for you. God loves you. God desires to save you from your sin. And he has made that possible through the sacrifice of his son on a cross on your behalf. And, and then, so then when you put your faith in Christ, and for Christians in this room, so what we need to be careful not to do with Leviticus 25 is to try to take that text and make a direct correlation between this economic picture in Israel and our economic pictures today and say the United States or any other country for that matter. So people have taken Leviticus 25 and tried to use it as economic justification for governmental redistribution programs that take from the wealthy and give to the poor. Now, let me be absolutely clear. My goal is not to dive into a discussion of economic theory or to start dividing this room along political party lines based on what you think about economic theory. I just want to acknowledge major differences between this Old Testament picture and our contemporary economy. So... We are not an agrarian society whose lives revolve around what land we own. For that matter, the land we own was not assigned to us directly by God in the way it was divided among the clans, tribes, families in Old Testament Israel. And then much like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we're not under the old covenant that we're reading about in the Old Testament. And nobody, we don't, we don't have a trumpet guy on staff that's going to come out every 50 years and and play some tunes, and then it's going to set off. And, and even if we did, I mean, who are we fooling? Nobody else is going to do anything outside of Brook Hills. It's just going to be us. And how do you decide when to start the 50 years? Like, this is not direct correlation. We need to start doing this every 50 years. So that doesn't make this text totally irrelevant to us, though. This text is extremely relevant to us. So what I've got in your notes, there are four primary takeaways from this text in our lives, in your life, right where you are sitting. So first, 
This passage reminds every single one of us that God is the owner of all things. These are going to sound simple, but if we really believe these things, this changes everything. God's the owner of all things. Just as the land in Israel belonged to God, so everything in the world, including everything in our lives, belongs to God. And so follow this. Because God is the owner of all things, we are his stewards. We're his stewards. So, so think about this in Leviticus 25. The land that belonged to certain tribes and families ultimately belonged to God. And the Israelites were mere stewards of that land. The land is mine, God says. And that mindset must be our mindset in our lives and our families. God is the owner of all things. We are his stewards. And when you stop and really think about this, process this, you begin to realize that stewardship is not just some subcategory of the Christian life. Stewardship, in a very real sense, is the Christian life. What do you have that does not ultimately come from God and ultimately belong to God? Everything belongs to Him. Everything we have, we are stewards of what we've been entrusted with. We're stewards of the breath we breathe, the minds we have. We're stewards of every single possession we own. We say we own it, but we don't ultimately own anything. It's been entrusted to us by the owner of all things. Turn over to, you're in Luke here. Turn over to Luke 19 with me. It's just one example. Let me, let me read this, this story. And there are other stories very similar to it in the Gospels. But this is one that's just nearby here to Luke 4. So Luke 19, a story that Jesus tells to illustrate this truth that God is the owner of all things and we are, we are stewards. Look at Luke 19, verse 11. The Bible says, as they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, so here's the parable, here's the story. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. And another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. 
Now, obviously we don't have time to dive into uh, all the details of this parable, this story, and, and dive into study of it. But even if we did, we have to be careful when we come to parables not to miss the overarching point. And the overarching point here is reflecting exactly what we're looking at in Leviticus chapter 25. So here's the picture. A nobleman gives each of these servants mina. Mina was about three months' wages for a laborer. And so the, the, the nobleman gives generously resources to these servants. And he entrusts those resources. And the nobleman has expectations for how those resources are going to be used while he's gone. He expects his servants to use this money wisely, to work hard, to do business, the text says, to make a profit. So the nobleman leaves for a time and then he comes back. And when he does, he calls each servant to give an account for how that servant has stewarded the money that was entrusted to him. So this parable and others like it depict how God has been generous in entrusting resources to you and me on this earth as his servants. Christ has gone away, is coming back. Part of the purpose here in Luke 19, the context here is talking about his coming and coming kingdom. But in the meantime, God expects us as his servants to use wisely what he has entrusted to us. And every single one of us in this room will give an account, an eternal account for how we have used what he has entrusted to us. God owner, we are stewards, which means Every breath you breathe, the mind you have, every single thing you possess ultimately comes from God. And he has expectations for how your breath, your mind, your possessions are to be used, which means we must be focused. We're stewards. We must work diligently and responsibly with every single thing God's entrusted to us. We want to be faithful to do what he calls us to do with the resources he's given us to do it. We want to work hard. We want to work wisely. With everything we have, our time, talents, our mind, our money, everything, knowing that he's coming back soon and we want to be ready. We want to be ready for the day. When you and I, just think of this. This is sobering. You and I will stand before God to give an account for how we have stewarded all that he has entrusted to us. And on that day, it will not matter at all what anyone in this world thought of us. It won't matter how many people called us great. It won't matter if 10,000 people were at our funeral or no one was at our funeral. It won't matter what the newspapers or history books say or don't say. The only thing that will matter, the only thing that will matter is what God who gave these things to us says on that day. He's the owner of everything. We are his stewards who will give an account. God's owner, we're stewards. Which leads to the second takeaway here. God is the savior of his people. So our family has been passing around sickness. Everybody's got it. And uh, uh, I was not able to survive without getting it. So um, God, the Savior of his people. So 
twice. And back in Leviticus 25, Leviticus 25:42 and Leviticus 25:55, twice God emphasized how he brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And in both of those instances, God says, they are my servants. This is why he said, you, you, you don't treat them as a slave because they're my servants. They serve me. So we see that reality in Leviticus. Now think about it in our lives. God is the savior of his people and we are his servants. Take Leviticus and bring it into our lives in a much, much greater way. Even than Israelites in Egypt needed God to save them from slavery. We in our lives need God to save us from slavery. From slavery to sin. From the punishment of sin. Huh. When, we, when we think about that day when we will give an account before God, who among us in and of ourselves could stand? Not one of us. No matter how good a stewards we may have been, all of us still have lives stained with sin. But the beauty of the gospel is that God has saved us. He's freed us from the power and the penalty of sin. He's put us in Christ, who's now our, our life, and we serve him. This is why one of Paul's favorite descriptions of himself in the New Testament was doulos. He was a servant. He's a slave of Christ. So see this. This affects everything about he lives, how he lives. Once you realize this, you put all this together. God, owner of us. God, the savior of us. We are stewards. We are servants. This totally changes your perspective on everything in life. Our lives don't belong to us. We, you and I, don't determine where we live. God determines that. So, so we're praying. We're praying over the next month for Turkey. And there's 70 million people and only about 4,000 believers. So as we're praying for Turkey, part of what we're praying, this is what I'm calling us to, the church is what the word calls us to. Part of what we're praying is, Lord, are any of us supposed to go to Turkey? And what we're saying is, any of us will go to Turkey if you're leading us to go to Turkey. This is what it means to worship. This is what holistic worship. Our lives belong to him. We're not just gathered together on this Sunday night to sing some songs. We've gathered together to surrender our lives and say, our lives are yours. We're your servants. You speak, we obey. And that's, that's not radical version of Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. There's, there's a lot of Turkish population up in Nashville. Lord, are any of us any supposed to go to Nashville? He owns us. We're his servants. The breath we have, the possessions we have, the families we have, we're stewards of. We don't call the shots. He calls, he calls the shots. We don't determine where we live. We don't determine how we live, our lifestyles, our spending patterns. We submit that to him, to his word. We report for duty. It's one of the things I love. Oh, even right before this in Leviticus 18 is where, or in Luke 18 is where you see a rich young man who comes up and says, what must I do? And Jesus says, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he's owner. If he says, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, then that's what we do. You, you go back another chapter, Leviticus 6, 17. So you also, after you have done all that you were commanded to do, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what is our duty. 
that, that's what I want to say on the last day in my life. I want to, by God's grace, be found in Christ and look back and say, I've only done what I was commanded to do. And I've only done my duty. It's what it means to be a servant of God. It's to report for duty and to, to do whatever he says to do. God's the savior of his people. We are his servants. Third, take away from the truth of this text, God gives second chances to us. Oh, so this is part of the heart of the year of Jubilee because every 50th year, God saw to it that every single person among his people would get a second chance. Every single person who lived long enough would have one opportunity to start over completely during their lifetime. Now, again, the year of Jubilee is not something we celebrate today in our culture or in the church, but has anybody in this room ever gotten a second chance from God? How about a third chance? A fourth, fifth, over and over and over again. I praise God that he gives chances to start over. Ladies and gentlemen, we are recipients of extravagant grace. God is so gracious to us. And part of, and I'm confident, part of his word for all of us in this room tonight is to hear. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And Oh, go back to non, non-Christian friends among us. You may, you may be hearing the gospel for the first time tonight, or you may have heard it a million times before tonight, and he's given you another chance. He's giving you another chance by God's grace. He's giving you another chance. And trust in him tonight. Why delay? Don't presume upon the patience of God. There comes a point where the nobleman returns, and it's too late. Even Christian brother or sister who may be struggling, indulging in this or that particular sin, I don't know what it is, but you know what's going on in your life. Like, hear the grace of God calling you out of that tonight. Confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive you your sins, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We're recipients of extravagant grace. He gives second chances to us, which leads to the last takeaway. God gives second chances to us at the same time God gives clear commands to us. Meaning, he has told us, in the words of Luke 19, engage in business until I get back. There is work to be done with the grace he has entrusted to us. So we're recipients of extravagant grace, which means we now reflect his extravagant grace. It's what it means to be a steward, right? What it means to be a servant, given much grace. To much is given, much is expected. We reflect, now, now there are so many ways reflecting his extravagant grace can play out in our lives. But here, let's hear, let us hear tonight what God is teaching us through Leviticus 25. God set up this celebration as good news for the poor. And the application may not be the exact same in a time where we don't celebrate the year of Jubilee. But we have been commanded to proclaim good news to the poor. 
So we work in our lives and in the church to give the poor a chance to succeed. You think about how this, this law of Jubilee was designed not just to give a, a lump sum of cash to those who were in need. Instead, Jubilee gave them something far better. Jubilee gave them opportunities. Gave them access to land, freedom to work that land, privilege, responsibility to create, maintain sustainability. So this wasn't a free handout that might lead to irresponsible laziness. Instead, it was a joyful call that would hopefully lead to responsible work for that person, that person's family, ultimately for God's glory. And so this is what we do. We've talked about this. We are some of the wealthiest people in this room, some of the wealthiest people to ever walk planet Earth. Put all this together. God has entrusted you and I. Think about this. God has entrusted you and I in this culture with more financial resources than just about anybody else in all of history. We're going to be accountable for how we've stewarded this. What he's given to us. We're servants who've been given extravagant grace. So how are we going to reflect that extravagant grace? On behalf specifically of the poor. And this is where, oh, I just want to encourage and commend you as a faith family. I was, I was standing here. I hadn't planned on addressing these, but this, this morning I was standing here at 11 o'clock. And over here to my right, I'm, I'm looking at Mark Whitehead, who leads Never Thirst, uh, a ministry started out of brothers in our faith family that just celebrated five years of bringing clean water to the poor. Five years, over the last five years, I think over 200 water projects, over 300,000 people that now have clean water as a result of what these brothers and others of them have been doing. And many of you have been involved in doing. We as a church have been involved in giving to in India and Sudan and Cambodia and Nepal, different places around the world. And, and along with bringing clean water, bringing news of living water through the local church. It's just been awesome to see the fruit of God's grace being reflected in that, that ministry. And then, so I'm looking to my right there, and I see over my left over here is, is Micah, who leads Vapor Sports Ministry. Many of you know the thrift store right around the corner uh, here. And Vapor, uh, a ministry that is involved in uh, Togo, West Africa, and Kenya, and Haiti, and using, using sports, using soccer specifically in those countries as an outreach into uh, sharing the gospel and making disciples in the middle of slum areas and along with that, helping create sustainable business opportunities and income flow for, for brothers and sisters who are struggling in desperate poverty. And just to see the fruit of that ministry. I'm sitting, sitting there. And then to think about what, what we as church have had the privilege of being a part of, even over the last few months. So it was, it was just at the end of the fall in October, end of October, that uh, I shared with you all about Work Faith Birmingham. And this is something we as elders have been praying about for years, really. And we as a church have been working on for years because uh, a few years ago when we did the Radical Experiment, that's when we began to focus on East Lake and Gate City in our city, in, in, in Birmingham, and saying, okay, how can we be a part of spreading the gospel amidst urgent spiritual and physical need right here in Birmingham, in addition to all of this stuff around the world, right here in our own city. And you know, members of our church have, have packed their bags and moved uh, into that area of our city uh, where there's a church, Church of Southeast Lake, that has begun. We're working alongside other churches there. But along the way saying, okay, how can we best serve 
uh, men and women in, in this part of our city and come alongside churches in that process. And we came to the conclusion the best way we could do that was by creating a, a jobs initiative, basically a jobs preparation and placement program that would uh, happen all in the context of, of gospel-centered relationships, gospel-saturated mentorships, so where people could come through and get training for job preparation and in the process develop biblical, biblical work ethic alongside a biblical worldview and uh, begin looking for jobs, finding jobs, and doing that with a uh, brother or sister, just pouring the gospel into their hearts. And so we, I shared that with you in October. And so I have the joy tonight of sharing with you now in April that as of this last Thursday, we have now officially graduated two classes of students from this jobs ministry, graduates ranging in age from 26 to 69 years old, all of them living in some level of poverty, looking for a chance to succeed, many of them challenging paths. 70% of these graduates have had uh, convictions of various sorts. 50% of them have had felony-level convictions, ranging from possession of illegal substances to armed robbery and attempted murder. What unites all of them, though, is that their lives are changing by the second, third, fourth chance grace of God. Most of these graduates, relatively new Christians, a couple of them on the verge, we hope, of trusting in Christ, walking alongside them now as they're looking for a job. Some of them have already found one. And so I want, I want to introduce you tonight to Tracy and ask Tracy to join me up here. So Tracy recently went through this training and graciously agreed to be here uh, all day today and just to give us a glimpse into her story and how that's intersected with this ministry. So, Tracy, will you share with us? My name is Tracy Harden, and I'm 28 years old. Um, I currently live at the Love Lady Center in Eastlake. My childhood has a lot of gaps in it. You see, I grew up in a home that was filled with anger, drugs, and abuse. My parents were constantly fighting, and peace was almost non-existent at our home. I don't doubt that my parents loved their children and they were good parents for a time, but that would all end as the walls of our family came crashing down. By the age of seven, the never-ending fighting between my parents led to divorce. I remember the day that my mom loaded up me and my brothers and sisters in her attempt to start a new life for us. My dad wasn't in the picture much, so I know my mom became lonely, which led to her trying to fill her loneliness with the wrong type of men. On New Year's Eve of 1992, my mom left me alone with one of these men. That night, he overstepped the line with me physically, and for the next eight years, many of the men who my mom brought into our home would repeatedly overstep those same lines. By the age of 15, I began to realize that this type of behavior was wrong. That same year, my mom introduced me to drugs, and I felt that using drugs was the way for me to earn my mother's love and affection. Using drugs was also a way for me to escape the shame, guilt, and pain that I felt inside. As a result of drugs being introduced into my life, my grades in school quickly went from A's and B's to me dropping out of school altogether. I moved to an abusive home with a man who said he would love and care for me. This was a move that would continue my dependence upon drugs, and as if things were not bad enough, the same year my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. When I was 17, my grandparents found out their daughter had cancer and moved to Alabama to help care for me and my mom. My grandparents quickly became my best friends. I found love and affection there and they required nothing of me in exchange for their love. 
Two years later, at the age of 19, I was pregnant with my first child and my mom passed away. After my daughter's birth and my mom's death, I dove back into drugs as a way to cope with my pain. My addiction to drugs was in high gear and I had to find a way out and pay for this habit. I started forging checks as a way to pay for my use, which soon led me to prison for the next several years. I was released into the care of the Love Lady Center in July of 2013. It was here that I would learn of the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for me. I learned that he paid the penalty of my sin and rescued me from my life of despair. I now have been clean for 10 months and I look forward to celebrating a year of sobriety in just two short months. Being at the Love Lady Center has taught me a new way of living, depending on Jesus instead of the drugs. I learned that there's a way out of abuse and drugs and that way is Jesus Christ. In March of this year, I was afforded the opportunity to attend a job readiness workshop at WorkFaith Birmingham. During this workshop, I learned how to put a resume together, how to deal honestly and ethically with potential employers about my past and help them to see the changes that I've made, which will carry me down a different path. I will say being in each class gave me the confidence I needed to get a job. I graduated WorkFaith Birmingham on Wednesday, March 18th, and by Friday, March 20th, I got the job of my dreams. I now work at Cobb Wheel Animal Clinic, and I know I would not have this job if it wasn't for WorkFaith Birmingham. My goal in life is to show women like me that they can move forward in life through the power of the gospel. And lastly, Brook Hills do not underestimate the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. This is Jubilee. This is celebrate. This is better than some trumpet guys sounding it out. Like this is this is a chance to start over, and it's a chance that we all have to be a part of by God's grace in our own lives, and as a reflection of God's grace in others' lives. I I. Uh, I didn't even know when I uh, decided, okay, we need to be in Leviticus 25 uh, today. I didn't know that it was planned, already scheduled, that uh, this afternoon there was uh, training for those who wanted to uh, want to be a part of this ministry, volunteering and as mentors, as mock interviewers and other things. And uh, It's kind of late for you guys, but I uh, was able to tell the earlier worship gatherings they could be a part of that. And uh, a ton of people came as a result of this morning and so but that doesn't mean there's no outlet for you so even when we finish tonight uh, I know uh, Keith our pastor of local missions who oversees this whole picture as well as uh, Tracy and others will be out in the lobby and would love to connect with you but this is this is the picture your life is not your own you're a servant he's the owner we are we're stewards we're recipients of extravagant grace. And so we ask the question, how are we going to reflect this extravagant grace by working to give the poor a chance to succeed and living to share the gospel with those in need? Now, I want to be really, really careful here that we don't get a picture of uh, 
Tracy or, or maybe others with similar stories, maybe similar past as, okay, that's someone in need. I want us to realize the picture is, and this is what this table reminds us of every single week, we're all in need. We're all in need. Like, where would any of us be apart from the grace of God? the mercy of God, the second chances of God. This table is a reminder to us every week that apart from the body and the blood of Christ, apart from the gospel, his love for us expressed in Christ, we, we shudder to think of where we would be. Well, if you found today's message helpful, don't forget to get the free discussion questions that are available on Radical.net. And your review of the podcast wherever you get your podcast is so helpful for spreading the word. It really does help. So thank you. At the top of the episode, I mentioned a groundbreaking tool for fulfilling the Great Commission, and that tool is Stratus. Radical launched Stratus right before Secret Church 21, and we have been thrilled at your response from using it. Stratus equips the global church to identify needs specific to certain countries, prioritize the areas of high spiritual and physical need, match resources and expertise to those needs, and then make informed missional strategies for allocating resources. That's the long way to describe it, but the best way to understand Stratus is by using it. And you can do that by visiting the URL Stratus. Earth. That's S-T-R-A-T-U-S dot Earth. Approaching the Great Commission with wisdom, humility, and understanding. That's all for today's episode of Radical with David Platt. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. Until next time, join us at Stratus.Earth.